Thank you, Michael. It's good to be with all of you again today in worship of the true and living God. And I want to take a moment to say that I'm grateful for the time that I have had over the past 13 years to come and to open God's word with you and to worship him with you uh, during the, the tenure of Pastor Randy Martin. It occurred to me as I was driving up yesterday that today, as far as we know in God's providence, will be the last time that I will be with you with Randy as your pastor. And there's a certain sadness for me personally um, because of that. And yet I'm excited about what the Lord is going to do in and through him and Julie in the coming days. But I would be remiss if I did not take the opportunity to to mark this, in a sense, milestone and express my gratefulness to them for their hospitality and graciousness over the years and how much I'm going to, to miss them. But I look forward, as God wills, to being back with the saints, you, all of you at Providence Reformed Church, as the occasions would arise. Well, let's continue our study of Micah chapter 7. We're bringing up the rear today in this three-part series that I've titled Replete Guilt and Resolved Grace. And over the past two Lord's Days, as we've looked at this final chapter of this great pre-exilic prophet from the 8th century BC, we have seen how sin and guilt comprise the totality of our existence. Every aspect of who we are is sinful and is therefore affected by the consequences of sin. And yet the good news is that the God that we serve, the God who loves us so unfathomably, is committed lock, stock, and barrel per his covenant to bringing out of all of the chaos of sin and misery a redeemed remnant for himself that will be his eternal family. And two weeks ago, in the first seven verses, of course, we saw this as we looked in on the prophet Micah's assessment of his own heart and his need as he took stock of everything that was around him and his connection to it, his need of a savior to look to Yahweh, the God of his salvation, and to be confident because he knew that it would be heard by him. And then last Lord's Day, we widened the scope in verses 8 through 13, and we began to look at the corporate dimensions of this. And we began to take stock of how it is that we, as the body politic of God, even today, his church, how it is as we grapple with our own sin and the ramifications of that, as we struggle through the world and as we're going through all kinds of challenges and the anxieties that they produce in the current time, uh, we see his faithfulness as he draws back those who are his own and replaces uh, sin and cursings with blessings. We saw that the, the hallmark, the, the axis verse of that passage is that he will bring us out to the light and we shall look upon his vindication, as this is the people of God, the blessed remnant, uh, speaking here as the prophet speaks on their behalf, to, to be vindicated, to be cleared of all wrongdoing, to be exonerated, to be absolved, by the one from whom we have estranged ourselves and our, our sins. What good news for such hard times. And then today, we're going to focus in on the restoration of which we have already caught a glimpse, obviously, in the first 13 verses of the remnant to ultimate blessing. Now, we've seen uh, throughout this chapter, and if you study Micah at large, you see that the, the indictments and then the following blessings contain and indicate that God will bring his people to a place comparable to the blessings of earlier life for them, and how that depicts, how that paints a picture, as it were, for the eternality of the ultimate blessing in heaven. So today we come to replete guilt and resolved grace, restoration through faithful shepherding, the shepherd sheep metaphor comes from the very beginning of Scripture and runs all the way through it in its redemptive history that it portrays. And we run into that again today. And we see not only how, as the shepherd, the Lord tends us and feeds us and takes care of us and blesses us in, in ways that we often associate, associate with compassion and tenderness, but we're going to see 
that there is also um, a, a characteristic and a, a dimension, indeed a title to the shepherd that renders him the shepherd king. Not only does shepherding entail the feeding and the tending, but it entails ruling, governing over his remnant, his people, as only he can in terms of pure justice and pure goodness. And this uh, underpins, this serves to bolster the confidence that we're seeking in our times as we open this great passage and to see how it is that ultimately he is our great governor. He is the one to whom we are accountable and he is the one who does right by us. So now let's turn our attention to the final seven verses of Micah chapter seven, beginning here at verse 14 and reading through verse 20. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God indeed stands forever. Let's again look to him in prayer. Lord, take now the words of my mouth and make the meditations of all of our hearts acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. About three years ago, as some of you know, I spent two weeks in Kampala, Uganda, as a guest lecturer at the African Bible University. I was invited there by my good friend, Dr. Robert Penny, who is a retired PCA uh, minister. While there, Bob told me the, the story of having attended the funeral of David Boo Ferris. Now, you baseball fans will know that Mr. Ferris was a pitcher for the Boston Red Sox between 1945 and 1950. He later became a college baseball coach, coached for many years at Delta State University in Cleveland, Mississippi. Mr. Ferris was also a believer. He was a member of the local PCA church at which for a time he had actually served as a, as a ruling elder, David Boo Ferris. His friends called him Boo. That was a nickname that was hung on him as a kid by his brother, who apparently, I'm told, could not pronounce brother. He, he just sort of let out a boo sound, and uh, that became the name that stuck for Mr. Ferris for most of his life. Mr. Ferris passed away in November of 2016, two weeks shy of his 95th birthday, and my friend Dr. Penny was at the funeral. He told of an account that Pastor Tim Starnes, who was officiating, indicated or relayed and during the service about Boo Ferris. He had visited Mr. Ferris a couple of weeks before his passing, and he found him to be wrestling with death and dying. And he wasn't sure whether it was an attack of the enemy or age or a legitimate struggle with assurance or what have you. Um, but Mr. Ferris looked at Pastor Starnes and he, he said, uh, Tim, what do I say when I stand before the Lord? And this caught Pastor Starnes off, off guard a little bit. But after he thought for a moment, he remembered 
an account that he thought would be an appropriate parallel for the situation at hand. And he said, well, Boo, you remember that time several years ago when I told you I was going to be taking a trip to Los Angeles and I wanted to attend a Dodger game and you gave me your old and good friend Tommy Lasorda's phone number and you told me to call that number at Dodger Stadium and to tell Mr. Lasorda that I was a friend of yours. You remember that? Yeah, I remember that. And you remember that I called before my trip and I dialed that number thinking I would get an administrative assistant and Mr. Lasorda himself answered the telephone and I told him that I was a friend of Coach Boo Ferris in Mississippi and that I wanted to attend a Dodger game. He gave him the date that he would be there and Mr. Lasorda uh, said to Pastor Tim, tell my administrative assistant when we hang up what you need and she will get it for you. And in a few days, Pastor Starnes Starn, uh, received uh, tickets in the mail from Mr. Lasorda, and he later attended the game on his trip to Los Angeles and was seated with Mrs. Lasorda and the Lasorda family right down behind home plate. And he was recalling all this. He said, Boo, do, do you remember that? He said, yeah, Tim, I, I remember that. And he said, well, Boo, when you stand before the Lord, just tell him that you are a friend of Jesus and you will get in and you will sit with the very family of the one who gains you admittance because you, you know his son. I was thinking about that the other day in contemplation of these verses and I was struck as I thought about how the restoration that Israel will enjoy, indeed the true remnant of God, is based upon a relationship that they have with the true and living God through the greater Micah. They know him. They are his friends. They are being restored, hence by his grace, being made capable again of keeping his commandments, the very ones that Jesus in John's gospel identifies as his friends. And there's a lot about death and dying that we touched upon last week. And as you have to consider when you survey sin and its impact on all of our lives and indeed upon our world. And it's, it's kind of hard to hear. You know, the, the last passage ended at a rather drab place, but the earth will be desolate because of the inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. That is, all of those people who are not within the wide boundaries set uh, for the remnant, that are not within the wideness of, of heaven's gates, they will be cast out forever and lost and apart from the love and grace and, and favor of God. But you see, we need to contemplate those things from time to time. We need to be aroused. A little struggle with assurance is a blessing periodically because it drives us back to the greater Micah. It reminds us again that we need him. We must be friends of his by his grace if we are to be among the restored. And he does this as our shepherd king, as our tender, but also as our governor and our ruler. And these twin pillars of who the greater Micah is, as is foreshadowed here in these identifications of the Lord himself, Yahweh, as our great shepherd king. This enables us to not only have assurance, but to recapture the joy and the greatness of contemplating just how amazing it is that his ultimate pleasure is in showing mercy to those who don't deserve it. So as our overarching theme today, as we consider this, it could be summarized very appropriately as follows. The covenant-keeping God of Israel is a faithful shepherd king, and the joy and anchor for the souls of those who trust in his promises is found in the Lord's unfathomable and undying insistence upon and pleasure in showing mercy. He insists upon it. That's his divine commitment, and it is his ultimate joy to do so. And so we're going to extract three points from these seven verses. First, uh, beginning in verses 14 and 15, we have the return to blessing because of God's power. The return to blessing 
because of God's power. And that power is important because we, we talk a lot about the omnipotence of God, but we seldom stop to really contemplate and to meditate upon the sheer force of God's abilities and what they what his powers brought together wield for us savingly to say nothing of all of the smaller blessings that we enjoy in our lives as we look at the 14th and 15th verses we come upon again the shepherd sheep language that is very familiar to us shepherd your people with your visit the prophet prays on behalf of israel it's it's great to see uh, shepherd as a verb, shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance. The word inheritance appears twice here in the passage in verse 14 and then again in verse 18. We are his heirs because we are co-heirs with the greater Micah. We are his beneficiaries. We're the ones who are going to inherit, to come into all of the blessings that his covenant love has in store for us. And we can think of passages in the Psalms that indicate both the tenderness of his shepherding as well as the boldness and the power of it as he governs us. For example, in Psalm 95 and verse 7, we're told that we are the sheep of we are the, the sheep of his hand. We are the people of his pasture. Earlier up in the third verse, the Lord is identified as a great God, the great king above all gods. So uh, these two works of his, the, the, the tenderness, the tending, the feeding, the compassion, is always alongside and, and juxtaposed and functioning with his great power to save and to eliminate the ultimate enemy of death. Shepherd your people. This is the cry from the prophet's heart with your staff. That also reminds us of the great beloved 23rd Psalm. We think of the rod and the staff, the rod with which God defends his sheep. Uh, the shepherd defends the sheep. He, he, he fends off big animals or wolves that would threaten the sheep, but he walks with the staff. The staff uh, had the, the crook at the top of it to pull sheep in or perhaps to, to bring them back to safety if they're trapped somewhere. But the shepherd also had to walk with the staff over hard and uneven terrain in order to fulfill his duties as a shepherd. And that foreshadows really how it is that uh, the good shepherd, the final shepherd, the greatest of shepherds in order to fulfill and to do his work as our shepherd had to walk the way he walked with his staff down the way of suffering, the Via Dolorosa, carrying his staff, which was the cross upon which he died for the remnant. That's behind the, the cry of the prophet and the people of Israel here and the people of Judah as well. He identifies them in verse 14b as those who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land, that is, they're, they're in a place now that is not as good for them as was Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. You remember when they took uh, the land of Canaan to the east, you found Bashan and Gilead. And east of the river were the places most marked and characterized by fertility and for greenness and pastures that were lush that rendered uh, food and so forth and everything for the living of those days on on that side of the river where they were taking the land parceled out to the various tribes to the east. So this is the descriptor of how they're going to wind up at a place like that and ultimately in the land flowing with milk and honey that they will never leave in eternity. And then he, he brings up Egypt again, as in the days of old, when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. The, the Exodus was the, the, the hallmark. It's the, the main event in Israel's history where God brought them out of slavery and, and bondage in Egypt. And he, he set them before himself in freedom and they eventually took the land. 
and he did marvelous things. Probably Micah has in mind here those particular wondrous works that Yahweh performed in the presence of Pharaoh, who was the principal enemy at that time. He's going to do all of this again, and in the midst of it, we see the power of the shepherd king. Now, this language is not here for the first time in this prophecy. There are at least two other places that I want to direct our attention to where Micah sets this up for us. We come into the shepherd king language, and we first encounter this in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. There we see the Lord's promise to gather his own, to gather Jacob, the ones whom he has loved savingly. And he says this, I will assemble all of you. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like a sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture. Now, the Lord God is the protector, we see here. He's the guide. He's the shepherd. And then the language shifts in the 13th verse to that of a king leading his subjects, his army, into victory. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Uh, their king passes on before them as their lord and their strong and powerful head. Uh, Randy mentioned earlier that glorious hymn that we don't sing often enough, For All the Saints, William H. Howe's great hymn. In the next to the last stanza, uh, the words we find there are, are so beautiful and they, they showcase the very thing I'm talking about here. Hal says, but lo, there breaks a yet more glorious day. The saints triumphant rise in bright array, and the king of glory passes on his way. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. He's the victor. He's our king. And we see this featured in tandem again, the, the, the gentle shepherd and the powerful victorious king in chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, where he declares he will, and I quote, assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those who I have afflicted. Notice the language there that's indicative of the temporary judgment that his own must endure. And the lame I will make the remnant. And those who were cast off, a strong nation, he will reign over them forever. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. The former dominion shall come, the kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Oh, my remnant I love, the Lord is declaring here. He's going to take the lame. He's going to establish them as his own. He will perfect them. He will give them everything that they need because he is their shepherd and he is their powerful king. He's their protection. He's their preserver. He is their victorious governor. Here we see it again in the cycles of redemption, of redemptive history. Just one more beautiful reminder of this work that he will accomplish. But perhaps the most direct reference and containing messianic language that would point us to Christ is found, as I indicated two weeks ago, in the fifth chapter, beginning in verse two and reading on into verse the beginning of verse five. We see the shepherd king duties here. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth to me one who is to be the ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. He's going to reign over them, and he's going to establish them and to bring peace. This is the greater David. David was born in a place too lowly to be named among the clans of Judah, and so will the greater David. He will come in all of his full deity, full humanity, 
and full humility as he is born in a low condition made under the law and assumes humanity in all of its worst aspects and yet is without sin in order to bring back to blessing the life that is lost because of sin and all of the cursings that pertain thereunto. And, and this is wondrous. It's powerful and it's relational. Without the personal relationship, without knowing, without being a friend of the shepherd king, there is no hope. Now, we talked about David, and we've made reference to David throughout our studies of the Psalms together and other parts of the historical books over the years as I have visited you and opened God's word. And we've seen David in all of his imperfections and sinfulness and the consequences that he bore because of it. And yet he was a man after God's own heart, and he was one who could be characterized as by the grace of the covenant God, one who was known as a shepherd who was good, who was not filled with bad intentions for his people, but meant well by them in his connection to the God who had called him. And yet he was never as good as the one who identifies himself as the good shepherd, the top shepherd, the perfect shepherd. In John chapter 10, beginning at the 11th verse, Jesus, in one of the great seven I am sayings, says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He's drawing a contrast between himself and all other imperfect shepherds who pointed nonetheless to him in some way. He who is a, is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But again, he says, verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not yet of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Note those great words. There are other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. There's one remnant with one shepherd king. That is the one to whom Micah points. And we see here not only the necessity of knowing him, but the power of coming to know him is his. It rests with him, the one who had the power to lay down his life and the power to take it up again and did rise victoriously on the third day from the grave, victorious over sin. I must bring, he says in John 10, 16, them also. And they will listen to my voice. They will hear me. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. By the power of his spirit, he is going to regenerate and draw them in. He establishes the relationship, and he does it with his power. That's the power of the shepherding God who restores his own to blessings so that things are not only as they were, but all is new and all is transformed personally, one with him, one flock, one shepherd, by his power, making his remnant his own. Octavius Winslow a 19th century contemporary of J.C. Ryle and Charles Spurgeon, known as the Pilgrim's Companion, once said this of deliverance and its personal nature. Open the iron-bound door of the condemned cell, and by the dim light that struggles through its bars, read the sovereign's free pardon to the felon, stretched pale and emaciated upon his pallet of straw, and the radiance you have kindled in that gloomy dungeon and the, <clears throat> the transport you have created in that felon's heart, <clears throat> excuse me, is a present realization. You have given him back a present life. You have touched a thousand cords in his bosom. 
which awake, awaken a present harmony. <clears throat> and where just previous reigns sullen, grim despair, now reigns the sunlight of joyousness of a present hope. <clears throat> there it is, in all of its glory, the regenerating power of the one who will gather his own and cause them to be his flock and him their one true shepherd. That is the epitome of the return to blessing because of God's power. Well, secondly, along with the return to blessings because of God's power, we have the submission of nations because of God's construction. The submission of nations because of God's construction. And we move into verses 16 and 17 here. The nations shall see and be ashamed of their might. That means they've been boasting about the power they thought they had, but they've surveyed the power of the shepherd king, and they've realized that their power and might pales in comparison to his, and they're filled with shame. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. They're going to be aghast that they could have ever believed such a thing. They will be struck with wonderment because of his power that is displayed. And, and what we catch a glimpse of here is really what we saw beginning in verse 12 last week. Micah is addressing the Lord. He says, in that day, they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, from far and wide, from Egypt to the river, that is the Euphrates, and from sea to sea and from mountains to mountains, that along the way, the elect are going to be gathered from all parts of the world and from all walks of life. Jesus alludes in that passage we just read in verse uh, 10 of John a moment ago in, in chapter 10 of, of, of John's gospel, how it is that there are those uh, who have not come into the fold, but he will go after them. They're not in the fold and he will go and get them. This is God's construction of his eternal family, very simply known as the building of his church. In Matthew 18, 16, we read those well-known words of Jesus that he will build his church and against which the gates of hell shall not prevail. Now that's that's happening here, and the the prophet is still hopeful, and he's still desirous of the undesirable, and those outside of covenant relationship with God would be brought into his eternal family. We, we have an inkling of that last week in the passage. I noted particularly the, the jussive verbs that are found therein, especially in, in verse 10. Those continue throughout verses 16 and 17. Um, it's as if, and again, it's not wrong to translate these as declarations of something at least tentatively accomplished, but we're missing something if we don't extract the intercessory or petitional dimensions of it. That if we translate this in uh, the most accurate way, they would be subjunctives in the English that would indicate a request from the heart. May the nations see and be ashamed. Let them lay their hands on their mouths. Let their ears uh, be deaf. And that's probably metaphorical for the shock that they would undergo when they hear the, the thunderous clapping of the marvelous works of God. Let them lick the dust like a serpent. May they crawl like crawling things upon the earth. May they come trembling out of their strongholds and let them turn in dread. Let them fear you. There's a desire here that the prophet has as he continues what can correctly be characterized as this long prayer. He's registering his desire. He's making his request known unto God that that these along the way over time would be brought in, knowing that the good shepherd wouldn't gather all of his own, making them his one flock over which he is the one shepherd. And you notice this animalistic language, these descriptors here talk about the serpent and the, the crawling things upon the earth that one can't help but remember Nebuchadnezzar in his estate in Daniel chapter four, where he was beastly. It was as if he had turned to something else, into something else, before he is brought in his dread before the Most High God and declares, as it were, his commitment to him. He had the fear of the Lord in him. 
And that is something that we're to expect God to do, to add to our numbers, as Pastor Randy mentioned earlier. We ought to pray that he would have mercy upon us in his discipline, disciplining of us in any given set of circumstances in the days in which we live, but that we may see him mercifully draw in those who are afar off, who have yet to come, that they might be sheep brought in to our fold and join us forever. The nations will see and will be ashamed, and out of that shame will come their turning in dread to the Lord our God. And I've listed here first uh, Second Corinthians 7, verse 1. I was looking at this last night, and it's interesting how what precedes that, uh, Paul has uh, listed uh, God's sayings, as it were, from the past that extract and, and make clear again the point of their sin, namely their idolatry, and how it is that he will bring them, and he even uh, admittedly, has his doubts. One can glean as one studies 2 Corinthians 6 and 7, and even in other parts of that great epistle, how it is that he doubts the authenticity of some of those to whom he is writing actually having been changed. But he says this, beginning in the 16th verse, quoting God in the face of Israel's idolatry, I will make my dwelling place among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And then it begins the next chapter, what we know to be chapter 7, saying, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. And I think when we look in, in Micah 7:17b, when we contemplate the dread in which they shall turn to the Lord their God and, and, and being in fear, uh, that's the fear of 2 Corinthians 7. It's a fear of holiness. It's a fear of seeing who God is and crying out to him in all of your desperation and being transformed, being perfected in holiness. The great African-American Reformed Baptist, Walter Bowie, used to say, I've been regenerated, I've been justified, I've been adopted as a child of God, I'm being sanctified, and I'm on my way to glory, and I'm enjoying the trip. Enjoyment of the trip ought to entail expectancy that there are those you would have never thought in a million years would turn in their dread to Yahweh and be in fear of him. Another great stanza in For All the Saints is the final one. From earth's wide bounds and ocean's farthest coast, through gates of pearl stream in the countless hosts, singing to Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, hallelujah, hallelujah. Marching upward to Zion, that beautiful and eternal city of God, with all kinds of sinners being brought in along the way. You know, at the close of the war of 1866, the triumphant Prussian army went up to Berlin. And as each regiment approached the gate at Berlin, it was stopped by a choir demanding by what right they should enter the city. And what would happen is each regiment would reply in, in song, kind of a, a musical colloquy. They would sing to the choir awaiting them standing there, all of the merit of their accomplishments and victories in battle. And then the choir would sing back to that particular regiment, enter into the city. And this went on regiment after regiment. They came in, they were admitted, and they flew their banners and saluted the statue of Frederick the Great of Prussia. And that's a picture of what will happen with the kingdom of God. Those who have fought the good fight will come up, and they will stand at heaven's gates, but they will not proclaim victory or sing a song of their own merit or their own victories in battle, but that of their great shepherd king, the greater Micah. They will tell of his excellent greatness and what he has done on their behalf. 
and heaven's choir will say unto this remnant, enter into the city on the basis of that, having been recognized, you see, as friends of the shepherd king. This is glorious, beloved. I mean, we need good news. We need words to make us feel better. And this is it. God is adding to the number of his remnant that he is faithful to his own to care for us and to assure all the victories that must be sealed on our behalf. Well, then finally, in the last three verses, we come upon the guarantee of reconciliation because of God's character. The guarantee of reconciliation because of God's character. When all is said and done, our hope is based on who God is. And we know that. His nature, his desires to do for us what is best. And this question that is posed in verse 18 is probably my favorite portion of the entire prophecy of Micah. And it may well be the best known verse, verse 18 of chapter 7, with the exception perhaps of Micah 6, 8, uh, that we quoted a couple of weeks ago. But look at this question. Who is a God like you? It's as if Micah has thrown up his hands and has burst into a kind of doxological tribute to Yahweh. He has moved from prayerful petitions more here to prophetic declarations, though I would argue it's still a prayer. There are still requests that go up out of his heart to the Lord, but he's he's focused back on the Lord and he is speaking of him in the uh, third person. This will change, you notice, in verse 19b, and he'll go back to the second person, making it much more personal. But he poses this great question, who is a God like you? You know, that's what Micah's name actually means. Who is like God? The one who is writing us is the one who knows all too well that there are none like God. He is incomparable. And we see this in his pardoning of iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. My, what what beautiful language. He he pardons our iniquities. He He literally carries them off. That's what pardoning here means, and to, to carry them off in participial form. It's the same verbiage that we find in Leviticus 16.22, where the goat, we're told, will carry off the iniquities of the people as the priestly figure pressed down hard upon the goat and spoke out all of the sins of, of Israel, and the, the uh, goat was then sent out as the scapegoat into the oblivion, the proverbial middle of nowhere in the desert. And those sins would not be ever known again. They are forgiven forever. In Exodus 34, 7, we read that he forgives, he pardons. It's the same word, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So there's this track record of this God pardoning, carrying off immorality and doing away with covering over specific transgressions, passing over our wrongdoings and all that that entails with regard to his justice, even as he passed over the doorposts at Passover that contained the blood of the lamb. And he's still doing that, and he will always do that. He does not retain, he does not hold on forever to his just judgment, the temporary judgment of God upon his people because they have earned it, because the wages of sin is death. That's not something that is eternal. He does not clutch that. He does not hold on to that, but he releases that, and he delights in showing steadfast love. It's his delight. It's, it's hard to get one's mind around God's delight. Now, we talk about our pleasures, the things that we love in, in life. We'll do something for someone. And we'll say, oh, it was my pleasure. I was delighted to do it. Well, that doesn't even begin to scratch the surface in, in terms of describing the joy, the delight that registers in the being of God over his good pleasure to be compassionate, to forgive, to pass over and to do all of these wondrous things. But his delight, even though we don't understand it, we need to see that the centerpiece of his good pleasure as we experience it is in showing his chesed love, his mercy. 
He has compassion. He feels sorry for us, as it were, and is moved as the one who can do something about it to liberally and generously gather his own to himself, as Jesus desired as he looked over Jerusalem and as a hen would gather her chicks. He longs to draw us in, and he does. He comes after his own, showing that compassion, that kindness, and he will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will, he will trod them down, literally. He, he will stamp upon them. And you, he begins to speak in the second person here, the Lord God, Micah says, you will cast off our sins into the depths of the sea. And this is the same language that we find in Exodus in the 14th chapter, the 13th verse, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. When the Red Sea was parted, the enemies of God's people were swallowed up in the sea, never to be seen again. And that's what he means by casting our seas that he has stomped upon down into the depths of the sea. He's saying that they, like the Egyptians, will be swallowed up and seen no more. And the metaphor of water in the scriptures brings with it such connotations. It's going to be gone. Gone forever. Your sins will never arise so as to present themselves to indict you or to show you as guilty. For you are among those who have been vindicated because he delights. He delights in steadfast love. God is committed to us per his covenant. And we must be utterly thankful that his delight, his joy, his greatest pleasure is in carrying out that chesed love. I read somewhere where comedian Drew Carey, after his famous sitcom and before he even before he was the host of The Price is Right, made it a habit of everywhere he went, be it in a restaurant or in a hotel, he tipped everyone at least a hundred dollars. He said, I can do it. I take joy in it. He gets such pleasure. He said, you give somebody a hundred dollar bill, you just make their day. And I revel in being able to do that because I can. And, and I love the reward uh, of knowing that I've helped someone. Well, God's great delight is in bringing to pass everything that he's committed himself to doing because of the greatest love that there has ever been. So there's no finding out the depths, plumbing the depths of the character of this God. But we know that it is because of this character that the reconciliation that we will enjoy as his remnant is indeed guaranteed. It's sealed. And you'll notice he says in verse 20, the prophet does, you will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. He's being faithful. He's being faithful. He's keeping his commitments to Jacob, to Israel, those who are his elect, and he is showing his chesed love to the one he promised it to way back in Genesis. Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. He said that he would make him the father of many nations. He said that Abraham would have descendants like the stars of the sky. And here he is with all of his faithfulness as their shepherd king keeping his promises and separating you from your sins and all of their effects and all of the great judgments that will come upon those from the character of God because he is just who do not know him. So let us encourage ourselves this day as we close our study of this final chapter of this great prophet by asking that same question, who is a God like our God? That he holds all of his creation and all of its fallenness in his hands, as it were, to speak anthropomorphically. He's in control of all things. He is working all things together 
for the good of his remnant. And he's past finding out. He can't be understood. You want to comprehend, but you can't. Who, who's a God like that? Who does these kinds of things? And leave it there, knowing that anything less than that would be a reduction that would offer to us no hope. Daniel Webster, while in the company of some literary specialist, was asked later in his life if he could comprehend the character of God and his Lord. He replied, no, I cannot. And I should be ashamed to acknowledge him as my savior if I could comprehend him. If I could comprehend him, he could be no greater than myself. Such is my sense of sin and consciousness of my inability to save myself that I feel I need a superhuman savior, one so great and so glorious that I cannot comprehend who he is. That's the one with whom the prophet Micah leaves us, my dear friends. And were he here today, he would want us to be encouraged by the reality and the workings and the great compassion and power of this great shepherd king who is past finding out. There's no one like him. And he would remind us, don't go to heaven's gate ill-equipped, but go by grace through faith, ready to say as you stand before the Lord, I'm a friend of the greater Micah, even Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, take the truths that we have considered here today and write them irremovably upon our hearts. Encourage us. Encourage your people, all who are within the sound of my voice. May they be built up in their faith. May they know that you are faithful to the end and that you will restore your people through your perfect shepherding, your perfect shepherding that features compassion, pity, tenderness, feeding, and safety, and victorious power that defeats all of his and our enemies and ushers us into that eternal kingdom that was sworn to our fathers as you committed yourself faithfully to them. Build us up by the, this today, and, and may we not turn to other props or foolishness to find encouragement in our souls, but may we be strong in him, in the greater Micah, as his friends, the one like whom there is none. And we pray it in his name. Amen.